All right, let's go ahead and pray as we open the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the time of worshiping you in song and for each person here that we can fellowship with you. Lord, we ask you to guide and lead as we look at this section of scripture and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I am not sure how far I'm going to get on this. This next section was too long to break up and yet too long for one sermon, so we're going to stop somewhere in the middle of it probably because <laughs> uh, you guys will get hungry for lunch at the right time. So, <laughs> um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 1 even though we covered that last week because it sets the stage for the verses we're going to look at. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of honor and the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And then the believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doing doting about questions and strife of words, wherefore cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmising, perverse disputings of men, and corrupt minds, and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. We have, and having food and raiment, let us therefore... Be, let us be therefore content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which draw men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which will, while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many arrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight, fight of faith. Lay hold of e on eternal life, whereunto you are also called and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. All right. I read the first part because it sets the stage for the word but. And as I've told you, when you see the word but, he's changing a thought. So you need to, and wherever you see the word but, you need to go back before that and say, what was he talking about before that? And this, the main part of this was he was looking at obedience and the person who's proud and arrogant. And the key word is that they suppose that gain is godliness. Okay, this was something that the Jewish people in Jesus' day thought. And even if you go all the way back to Job, if you have lots of stuff, you're being blessed by God. And so if you're being obedient, you've got stuff, your, your world seems okay, then you are godly. Now, Job is a great example of God says, no, the stuff isn't what makes you godly, it's your actions. So we lay this foundation, and he says, but, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, and this is a question for all of us. Are we content with whatever we have? And contentment is the satisfaction, I'm going to read this definition, satisfaction of the mind without dispute. Okay. Are you a contented person? Are you happy with what you have or are you always wanting something else? Now, it's human nature to want something else. 
And we've talked about this. You, you get your brand new dream car and you're happy with it until somebody puts a scratch in it. And then all of a sudden it's not worth it. Or you're happy with it for a couple of months and, you're, and a friend of yours gets some car that has some feature your dream car didn't, didn't have and all of a sudden you're not content. You get your dream house built and you, you didn't get something put in it that your friend has and you're not content. You know, it is human nature to be discontented, to want more because that is our human nature, which is why God wants to crucify our human nature. And he says, true godliness is being content. And that's where the great gain is. If you ever notice sometimes when you're just content in God and you're just happy, you're just Okay, God, whatever you've given me, you know, I, I look at it and say, okay, I've got a roof over my head. I've got, you know, the utilities are on in my house. There's, you know, some food in the table, you know, on the table in the, in the cupboards. May not be all the food I want, but there's food in the cupboards. And go, God, you've been, you've been good. You have met the needs. And the real question is, can you be content? Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. And then remember, Paul's talking about when he says little, he's being chased out of town you know, with nothing. Well, whatever he had was left behind, and he's leaving town with nothing, and he says God's going to provide. You know, we're told in the Old Testament, God's people are never forsaken completely. Now, we in America may feel like we're being forsaken when we only get two meals a day or one meal a day, but there's much of the world that if they had that much to eat, they'd be extremely happy. If they've got a box to sleep in overnight, they're, they're happy. And we're looking at, well, God, I don't have my three meals and I don't have my, my, my cell phone and my cable isn't on in the house and I, my car, you know, my car's breaking down, you know, and, and, you know, what we call necessities in America, most of the world look at and say, you're rich. And so we need to learn to be content with what God gives us. And this is what Paul's telling him. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm not trying to be good to get something. You know, there's a lot of people who say, well, you know, just follow all these rules and you're going to be okay with God. Well, following the rules is not what makes us okay with God. We're okay with God because his grace clothes us with Jesus Christ. And if we can learn to be content with that, you know, God might give us the blessings that we want. But we're not doing it to get the blessings. It's, God, I'm just so happy. You have met this need. You know, and this is where he's talking about, you know, be in godliness. And then he goes, just in case you didn't understand that, he goes in verse 7, For you brought nothing into the world, and you certainly will not carry anything out. Okay? And this is what he's saying. You gather all this stuff, and you're not taking any of it with you. It's stuff you're... you're your kids are going to get to fight over it when you, when you die. Your grandkids will get to fight over it. It's just stuff. The government will take their share of your stuff. He goes, it's just stuff. Uh, and this is the same thing that um, Job said, you know, that I came into, in Job 1, 121 when everything was taken away. Naked I came into this world. Naked I will depart. Uh, in Ecclesiastes um, 3, uh, 5.15, uh, Solomon says the same thing. You know, we came in with nothing, we're leaving with nothing. And this is the thing with us as human beings. We struggle so hard in this world to get a bunch of stuff. And Jesus is saying, lay up your treasure in heaven where moths do not eat it and, and rust doesn't corrupt it. You know, 
we need to be doing things like the shoeboxes, you know, doing, passing out tracts, passing out New Testaments, getting out there and sharing the gospel of Christ so that we get eternal rewards. You know, we were watching that little video about the little girl who set a $20,000 goal for boxes for her church. You know, imagine the rewards in heaven she's going to get when she gets to heaven and she can walk and run and leap and all of a sudden people come up to her and say, you know, I'm here because of the box. <laughs> You, you help prepare or you set the goal for. We don't know what great blessings are out there for us. That what we do is going to touch people. I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I don't do anything for God or I don't, you know, I don't think I'm doing anything for God. I'm going to tell you, if you read any of the biographies, you talk to anybody, most people have said that at some point in their life and then they realize what God has done how I've touched people. I was here listening to a story just yesterday where the guy was telling me about this guy in Australia that used to just pass out tracks to people. And he goes, and all his man message was, was God loves you, and he passed him a track. He didn't do anything more than that. And he did it out at a seafaring town. And this one pastor learned about this guy from about eight or nine people at the port city in England. So he decided to go find him. And everywhere he went to talk to people, they were being saved because of this guy <laughs> passing out tracks. When he finally met him, he goes, you know, I don't know why you're here. I haven't done anything. He goes, no, you've got hundreds of people, thousands of people that have come to Christ because you were faithful. We don't know what it is that we do that will draw the attention of God to people. Just being faithful and walking with them and praying for them. Just a little sharing that we may do with a friend. Have you ever shared your faith with a friend? Carl was telling me about a friend who called him up who's newly saved and telling him about his experience. So he was able to talk to him about, <laughs> about it. You know, it's an amazing thing when we talk to our friends and go, do you know Jesus? We may just be planting seeds. You know, we talk to our children, planting seeds. We talk to our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our uncles, our family, or, you know, those we work with, planting seeds. You may think that you've never led anybody to the Lord, but you don't know what seeds you planted in people. And this is what he's saying. You know, we can't be going after the stuff of this world. We need to be looking at stuff that's going to be eternal. I can picture in heaven when people come up and say, because you did this. You know, the money that we've given to Lottie Moon that goes out to, to keep those missionaries on the field. You know, we're part of what they get. You know, the money that, we've, that you guys have given, the candy that was given to get the parade last week and pass out those bags. So far, we don't know if anybody's gotten saved in, in the five years we've been doing it. Nobody's ever called us up and said, I got saved by the, by the parade. But you know what? I can't believe that we've passed out 3,000, you know, uh, 12,500 uh, 12, uh, Bibles and tracts and not had anybody get impacted for the kingdom. You know, we get to heaven, somebody's going to come up and, you know, I got one of those bags. Or better yet, my dad or mom got one of the bags and then I got saved out of the deal. You know, we don't know, and this is what he's saying, what are we seeking after? Are we seeking after true godliness? You know, how many times have I heard somebody says, well, you know, God has disappointed me or God hasn't done what, what I think he should? Well, the bigger question is, who made you God in the first place? <laughs> you know, I've had God meet my needs. Does that mean he's answered every one of my desires? Absolutely not. 
Many times, you know, a problem that we have with God is we expect God to always say yes to us. Um, I haven't experienced him always saying yes. I've heard him say, wait. I've heard him say no. You know, but the one thing I have really learned over my lifetime is no is an answer. You know, a lot of people say, God didn't answer me. Did he tell you no? Well, yeah. Well, that's an answer. Last time I knew, no was an answer. Now, no is not an answer we usually like to hear. Okay? When, when we were kids asking mom and dad if we could go do something and they said no, we usually weren't very happy. When you were at work and the boss says, no, you can't do something, you're not usually very happy. When your spouse says, no, I don't want to do that, and you really wanted to do it, you're not very happy. No is not usually an answer we want to hear, but God sometimes will give us the answer, no. When he does, it's for our good. <laughs> All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. So when he says no, he's got a reason. Just as hopefully when we're our parents and we tell our kids no, we have a reason. Now, I know some parents get in the habit of always saying no, and that's not good either. <laughs> but, you know, our goal should be, my goal with my kids was to say yes as often as I could, but no when it really was something that mattered and was going to hurt them or be bad for them. And that's the way God is. He wants to tell us yes as often as possible, but he knows that some things are not good for us. And this is what he's going to tell us at times. Um, and, have, you know, and having food and raiment, let us therefore be content. You know, be content. Be content with the necessities. Then he gets into another but. <laughs> and this is a pretty big one. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred in the, from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He goes, but they that will. They that will be rich. And this is meaning to greatly desire. Okay. How many of us know somebody or maybe some family member that has this great desire to be rich? Probably all of us have had that desire at some point in our life. You know, when I was a teenager, I had plans to be, you know, millionaire by 30 and retired. It didn't even come close. <laughs> uh, but I also wasn't willing to sell myself for the, for the millions of dollars. And I've met people that are pretty much willing to sell everything to get rich. And this is what it's saying. Those that will, those that have that great desire to be rich, he goes, fall into temptation and snares. Now, I, I know several people, a couple even in my family, they, they have gotten involved with every uh, multi-marketing scheme, everything that comes along. They, they get a couple dollars ahead and they buy into something that's, a, that's a supposed to be the next big thing because they just have this desire to get wealthy quick. And in Proverbs, it tells us that if you get rich quick, you lose your money quickly. And that's usually a very true statement. These people who win the million-dollar lotteries and everything usually regret it because they don't know how to handle the money, and they get friends that come out of the woodwork to help them spend their money. 
and they've got lots of friends while they have money and they have no friends when they run out of money, just like the prodigal son. He had all kinds of friends until he couldn't party with them. And then he's eating with the pigs. You know, we see athletes and, and movie stars and song people that get rich overnight and just don't know how to handle it. And many of them hire managers who oftentimes rip them off. You know, it's a sad thing, but it, God says, if you get your money quickly, you will lose it quickly. Yeah. And that's what happens to those who desire to be rich. Now, do they sometimes get, get lucky and get rich? Yes. You know, most of these first generation you know, millionaires, they get a lot of money and then they go broke. They get a lot of money and they go broke. They speculate you know, um, and they go bankrupt you know, they, several times in their lifetime because they're so desiring. They're not happy with the first million. They've got to get the second million, the third million, the fourth million, the, the billion, and they're never happy. You know, I believe it was Rockefeller who was asked, how much is enough? And he goes, just a little more. You know, one of the richest men of his day, just a little more. I don't have enough. You know, every year, our, our financial magazines put out the list of the top 10 or 20 or 100 richest people in the world. All it does is motivate the guys that aren't number one to try to be number one. Yeah. And I don't know why a billion or two, two or three billion is not enough for most people. Yeah. All they're going to do is leave it to their kids to fight over. Yeah. And this is something we've got to realize. What is it that we're seeking? Are we seeking God or are we seeking stuff? Stuff will draw us away from God if, we, if we're seeking after stuff. And I've shared with you, I've met many people who are, who are good, strong Christians, and God has blessed them mightily and given them stuff. And then in the end of the latter part of their life, you go, well, where have you been? Well, you know, I've, I've been at the vacation home. I've been at the, at the lake using my boat. I've been using the, you know, this, that, or the other thing. You know, well, you, why aren't you coming? Well, you know, I've just been busy. God gives them the stuff. He blesses them, and then the stuff takes them away from God. And that's not saying the stuff is bad. If you keep your stuff in perspective, it's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have a vacation home and, and you know, 19 cars or whatever. I don't know why you want 19 cars, but there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. But how is it glorifying God? Are you still staying focused on God when you do this? And he says, they will be drawn into temptation and snares. You know, and snares literally are things that catch hold of you. you know, hunters use snares all the time to capture animals. And that's literally the picture he's talking about, that the desire for wealth will capture you and take you away from God. And this is you know, very strong, strong worded. And then it will drown men in destruction and perdition. Have you ever walked away from God and stopped focusing on God and then felt like you were drowning? You know, drowning in all that was going on in your life, drowning in all that was happening as you watch things happen. You know, and it's an amazing thing, you know, I've told you, shared to you all, when I was a young, you know, young in my 20s, I walked away from the church for a while, and I did feel like I was drowning. I wasn't worshiping, I wasn't going to church, I wasn't reading my Bible, and my life felt pointless and directionless. And I know most people have been there at some point in your life, either before you're saved, after you're saved, or at some point during your walk with God. Because it's easy to take your eyes off God. And he says, you drowned. It's going to drown them in destruction 
and perdition, and perdition is utter destruction. Okay, hell is often talked about as perdition, utter destruction and punishment. And then it says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now this is the verse that's so often misquoted that everybody has been aware of. Most people will say money is the root of all evil and they leave out the love of money. And I want to tell you that the word actually in Greek is avarice, that the great greedy desire for money is the problem. I've got to have money. We've all met people that have this desire. And you know, this can be somebody who's very poor who wants more money. It can be the very rich who want more money. Everything is driven by money. You know, they're the ones that the church is needing money. They're not going to give the money because they need the money. They wouldn't, give the, they wouldn't give anybody any money who needed help, and they knew that they needed help. They wouldn't give it to them because they love their money. Avarice, that greedy desire for money. He says that greedy desire for money is the root of all evil. And you think about this, and this evil in his is the word kakos in the Greek, and it means moral evil. Okay? And it's, it's the worst form of evil, it's saying. If you're really desiring money, you pretty much will do what it takes to get that money. If your whole desire is money, that greedy desire and love of money, you will cheat people, you will hurt people. That's when the corporations and the businesses come in and, and buy, up your, buy up your properties that, you know, and then knock them all down and build these big, big things so they can make some more money. And if you, if you won't sell, they get the government to help you sell so they can build something and make more money. We need to be very careful of this because this can affect all people. The love of money can affect all people. You know, and I tell people, you know, I've got the two jobs and you know, one of them is just to make money. Not because I love the money, but it takes money to live. But you know, I've also told people, if it, if it came down to just deciding whether to lose that job that helps pay the bills or this job, that job gets disappeared and this one gets, gets kept because this is where I know God wants me to be. And he will pay the bills if it comes down to it. Being content, being able to say, God, you're able to do it. And this is what he's telling us. You know, if you're desiring money, you're going to make the sacrifices the wrong way. When it comes down to deciding what you're going to do, if you have a love and avarice of money, you're going to do whatever it takes. You know, God, I really can't stand this job. It's hurting people, but I'm going to keep doing it because it's, it's getting me money. I, this business is what I'm going to do because I need the money. And this is not what he's saying. It is the root of evil. And it says those that covet after have erred from the faith. If money is your God, then you've got a problem. And that's what it's talking about. Avarice, the great desire for money, will drag you away from God. It will make you have decisions that aren't godly. Okay, God says, help this person. You say, nope, going to keep my money. God says, help the church. He goes, nope, going to keep my, keep my money. God says, I want you to spend helping missionaries around the world. Nope, going to keep my money. You know, and it's God's money that we get to use. You know, we need to keep that in mind when we're really serving God. It's his money that we get to use some of. And, you know, all he asks us for is 10% of what he gives us to use. You know, if we want to bless him and give him a greater offering, that's our business. But he says, I'm going to give you all this money. Just give me back 10. And you give me back 10% of it. And you can use it the rest the way you want. And, you know, it's such a blessing. I've, I've shared with people, I love giving the tithes and offerings and watching what God will do. 
Now, there is a statement that I learned a long time ago, you can't outgive God. And in my lifetime, I've experienced that. You know, uh, I give more than the tithe, and it's like sometimes I look at that check and go, okay, God, there's, there's some tight spots coming up this month. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? And he's always managed to make ends meet. And usually then some. God is looking to bless us, but he wants us to say, God, you're number one. You're my number one to deal with. And you honor him, and he does usually give you back things. Now, you may go through a time with Job where he takes everything away, and he's saying, are you going to still trust me? There's times when I get to the point of the bay and I'm looking at his bills that are due and go, God, I don't know where this is coming from, and, but I'm giving you your portion. And he says, here it is, and he provides. You know, what is our faith level with God? It can be very hard sometimes to have faith. God, I want to give this to help out this person. I want to give this to help out. I've been looking at these boxes, and I've, I've made a few of these boxes myself. I'm going, God, I don't know. You know I'm sacrificing these for you. He's, I know he's going to honor it. If nothing else, they'll give the gifts in heaven. Where do you stand when it comes to a place for faith? I've heard the testimonies from many of you, and I love it when people tell me that, you know, I prayed and this happened, or I did this, and God blessed this way, or I was faithful and God blessed. It is wonderful to listen to those testimonies. And I encourage you, share them with each other. Share your testimonies of God's goodness with each other because it is a great blessing to hear those. It's an exciting thing to hear that. You know what God did? And I told you, I used to go to work all the time when I was a restaurant manager, and I'd tell them, you know what God did this yesterday for me? And I could just see my employees looking at me like, you're going to tell us another God story, aren't you? <laughs> you know, you're giving God the glory again. You know, even at the prison, I'll do that, especially with employees. I'll talk to them all the time about what God is doing. Do you know what God is doing? Do you get excited enough about God to share God with your friends, your neighbors, other Christians? Telling them what God is doing for you? Or do you come to church Sunday morning and don't think about God all week? I hope that's not the case. Because I want God to be alive and real to us. You know, be able to read our Bible each day, talk about what God's doing, stand up in faith and do something for him. When I talk about so often when we make the church budgets, I always want to make a budget that's going to be hard to reach because I want God to be in that budget that says, this is God's budget. And by his grace, every year we've increased the budget, and every year except for this year, <laughs> we've hit the budget. Now this year we haven't hit the budget, but we also haven't overspent either. We've been, we've been cutting back on spending. But you know, I want people to say, I'm walking by faith. God, I don't know how this person's going to react when I tell them about your gospel, but help me. You know, if you can't speak it, go grab the tracks in the back room here in the hallway and give them out, give them out tracks. You know, you know, the power of a track is very strong. People have put tracks in, on their counter in a drawer. They might read it a year later when they clean out the drawer. and like, Oh, yeah, so-and-so gave me this. Let me read it and get saved. And you still have part of that. Don't underestimate the little things that you can do for God. Because we are just his servants. We can't do anything anyway. If you're the greatest orator, the greatest person in giving out the gospel, you still can't convince somebody to be saved if God's not working on their heart. You could be the clumsiest person in the world at giving the gospel message out. 
And if God's working on their heart, they can get saved. And you know what? Don't fear it. Just go out and do it. Share with people. Share with people, you know, tell them your testimony. If nothing else, you know, when I was 10 years old, I got, went to junior church and I heard the message and I realized I was a sinner and I got saved. You know, that's my testimony. 10 years old, junior church got saved when I heard the message. Was that pastor up there super abundantly oratory? I don't remember. You know, I don't remember anything about what he said other than the fact I knew that I was a sinner that needed Jesus. And, you know, most of you probably think about this. When I got saved, what was it that was said when I got saved? You may or not even remember. Because the person speaking was not what was important. It was the message they gave from God that was important. So don't ever think that you can't share, that you're, that you're too clumsy or too tongue-tied. You know, that was Moses' excuse to God. God, you know, I can't speak to anybody. And God says, fine, then I'll have your brother Aaron speak for you. God, uh, you know, I'm a wanted person there. I can't go back to Egypt, but God says, I'm sending you anyway. You know, Moses had all kinds of excuses, and yet he's one of the greatest men in the Bible when he finally said, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to tell you, because it is all God anyway, you don't know what you can and can't do because yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And without Christ, I can do nothing. No matter how good I might think I am or you think you are, you can do nothing without Christ. And this is very important for us to understand. And then the last section here, in verse 11, another but... <laughs> But you, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. What things to forget? The love of money, the love of, the love of gain through you know, being godliness. He says, all those things you think are good, flee from them. Now, flee is a very strong word. <laughs> it, you know, if you're fleeing from something, you are running for your life. You are running as fast as you can to get away from whatever it is that you're looking to flee from. And you're seeking safety. And this is what Paul's telling Timothy specifically and us as Christians. Flee these desires. And while you're fleeing, he says, seek after righteousness. Righteousness, doing what is right. And he says, seek it. And I think this is important that he says seek it because too many times we think it's something that we do. I have to perform righteous acts. I have to be righteous. And God says, no, I want you to seek my righteousness. Isaiah tells us that all our righteousness in our flesh is filthy rags. We're to seek the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? We hide in him. We put on Christ, as Paul tells us over and over in the epistles, put on Christ. And that really has the picture of just sinking into a luxurious robe. Now, does anybody have a robe that they just they get home and they, they're taking their bath and they just put on a robe? They just or very comfortable clothes in our day. Now, mo many people say, I just can't wait to get out of my suit and tie. I'm going to put on my jeans and my sweatshirt or my t-shirt. I just want to be comfortable. That's what the picture is of Jesus saying when Paul says, put on Christ. He's a comfortable garment to put on. And, he gives, and, it, and God looks at us and he says he's righteous. 
And when we're doing that, he will change us and teach us to be godly, more like him. That we become more like him with each passing day. He indwells us and he changes us. This is one thing I tell everybody. I love being a Christian. It's easy to be a Christian as long as you'll surrender to God. You know, I've met so many Christians though in their lifetime that don't want to surrender. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm working real hard on being good. Quit working and let God make you good. Because your work isn't going to make you good anyway. You know, let God give you this great righteousness. Let God give you his godliness. Faith. Do you want more faith? Faith is really simple. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Get into your Bible. You want more faith? Get into your Bible. Get to really know God. And when you're reading the Bible, you're reading it to know what it says, but more importantly, you're reading it to apply what you said. I believe it was last week I said, you know, I would rather have people just know one or two things from the Bible that they're applying than to have the whole book memorized and not doing anything. Because if you're applying his word, your life is going to change. And I have a secret for you. The more you the, as you apply things, the more you're going to desire to apply things because you're going to start seeing that contentment. And then you, know, you look back 20 years later and say, wow, look at all that God's doing for me as I've gotten increased faith. And again, that's one of the testimonies I hear from people. You know, why did it take me so long to get there? And this is what I share. You know, people go, well, how do I get victory of it? You surrender to God and he gives you victory. Well, how do you surrender? You do it. You, you just surrender. Well, how do you surrender? Well, and I've said this, if the police were outside of our door with a bullhorn saying, come out with your hands up, you have a choice. You can go out with your hands up or you can say, no, you know, I'm not coming out until you come and get me. We do that to God so often. God, I am not coming out with my hands up. I'm not surrendering. I'm not surrendering. I'm not surrendering. And finally we surrender and go, wow, it's so simple. And look at the blessings I'm getting when I surrender. The question is, how long do you want to fight with God? True spiritual um, maturity, <laughs> get the word out, says, okay, God, I surrender. The more childish we are in that area, the longer it takes us to surrender. Some of us have areas in our, in our life where it's been weeks, months, years, decades. Yeah. Nobody's, been, nobody's a century, so we're not going to go to century. But you know, how long do we sometimes fight with God and not surrender? And then when we finally surrender that area to God, we look back and say, wow, it was so simple. God gave me victory so quickly. My challenge for each one of us, myself included, is learn to surrender to God quickly. Build your faith. Listen to the stories of other people around you and how God has built them, and it will build your faith as well. Then we learn to love. Isn't love so easy? We all naturally love each other, right? <laughs> and we know that's not true. And this love here is agape love, which means objective love. Literally, it means that I just choose to love you. Doesn't matter what you do or don't do. I choose to love. It's what a marriage, a good marriage is based on. True, objective love. I choose to love you. When you're, when you're driving me crazy and you're, and you're making me go nuts, I choose to love you. When I have the feelings that I'm in love with you, it's really wonderful because I still choose to love you. God's love for us is that objective love, and you know, we wouldn't want it any other way. 
God says, I choose to love you. And because God does not change, he will not choose to not love us. And this is the world that he loves. Now, it doesn't mean he's not going to send the world to hell to reject Jesus, but he chooses to love. Then he says, patience. <laughs> oh, patience is one of those wonderful things, isn't it? Yeah. God loves to test our patience. He'll put very difficult people in our paths. He'll put in very difficult situations. It's the day you get up, you, go, you, you wake up late for work, you walk out and your car battery won't start. You get there, you go to your second car and it's got three flat tires. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I have very important things to do. <laughs> you finally get to work and people are just irritated with you all day long and they're irritating. God says, are you gonna learn to just be patient? Think about the patience of God. Yeah. Sometimes I think about God, you know, you, you are just so amazingly patient. Yeah. Number one with me and then all the other people that I know out there as well. Yeah. You haven't destroyed this world yet. What patience God has. And he wants us to reflect his patience with others. And say, God, I'm just going to be more loving, more kind to people. He says to be meek. The best definition I've ever heard for meekness is power under control. Somebody who doesn't necessarily have to be right. Somebody can just say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. I, I know lots of people who aren't meek. <laughs> they have got to be right. You know, they will argue with you over every topic and they just have to be right. Meekness, which is a godly attribute, says, okay, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. You may even have some very strong opinions about something, but if it's really not that important, it's really not going to hurt. Uh, you, you like this restaurant and I don't. I have all my reasons not to. Well, you know, you've got to not like that restaurant. And I know that's a very far-fetched example, but, you know, I, I know people that would be that, that stringent. Our meekness says, okay, you know, you have basically had the right to be wrong. You know, you had the right to be wrong, and I'm just going to stand and let, let God work on you. Then he tells him, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto you are called and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. He says, keep in the fight. So many Christians get out of the fight, and you know, we are in a spiritual battle, always. We will be in a spiritual battle till the day we die and get to go to heaven. When we really get in trouble is when we forget that we're in a spiritual battle. And that's true of any battlefield. If the if this com, uh, combatants forget that they are in a battle, they will stick their head up out of, the, out of cover and get it shot off. They will, they will you know, take a rest and get, end up catching shrapnel. They'll... they'll die because they forgot that they were in battle. We need to always remember, while we're on this world, we are in a spiritual battle. Sometimes we will look like we're winning the battle. And God was ultimately going to win the battle. But Satan will not just sit back and say, oh, well, I lost, I lost that church, or I lost that town, or I lost that family. He will come back with a vengeance to attack. You know, every once in a while, I hear, well, why are these things happening in my life? Or why are these things happening in the town? 
because Satan was getting beat back and he's not going to, to get beat back without a fight. You know, if you can at all fight back, you're going to fight back if you're in a battle. Always remember, when it looks like we're winning the battle, get ready for the counterattack. Satan will always come back. Everything's going well in your family. All your kids have gotten saved. And the next thing, something is going to happen in your, in your family. You know, may not be right away. You may get to have six months or a year with everything seeming to go well. That's not usual, but it might be that long. And the next thing you know, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to slide away from God. Somebody's going to say something that's going to irritate you and start the whole process all over again. Be ready. God never promised us happiness and joy and ease in this world. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. Now, where Christians ever got this idea that I'm going to get saved and everything's going to be, you know, roses and, and sunshine, I don't know because that's not what the Bible tells us it's going to be. It's what heaven will be. <laughs> Heaven's going to be perfect. The new heaven and earth will be perfect. But while we live on this world, it's going to be trials and tribulations and, and headaches. And Paul said, you remember we, just a couple weeks ago, Paul said, thank you for these light afflictions that I'm suffering. And we define Paul's light afflictions. Shipwrecks, beatings, being chased out of town, uh, you know, bitten by serpents, you know, being attacked by people. That's what he called light afflictions. Most of us would have said, Paul, you're absolutely nuts. Why did Paul say they were light afflictions? Because he was looking to heaven saying, when I get to heaven, none of this matters. When I get to heaven, and I've been in heaven for billions and trillions and quadrillions of years, none of this stuff on earth is going to matter at all. We'll look back and say, you know, kind of vaguely remember those trials and hardships on earth, but look at all the blessings. Look at the rewards. You know, it won't matter. And Paul said, fight the good fight, Timothy. Lay hold of, on eternal life. Wherefore you have been called. And it says, professing before many uh, witnesses. And this is the word homologeo. It means to confess or say the same thing as. When God gives you blessings, tell others about them. Let others know what God is doing in your life. You know, number one, they'll just know, they already think we're crazy anyway. It'll just make them know that we're crazy. <laughs> you know, might as well let them know. You know this is not our home. This is not our home. We need to be talking about what God has done and what God is doing. Because our future home is heaven. Our future time is to be in a perfect relationship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. You know, do we think a little bit about our future home? Because if we start thinking about it, we don't recognize all the pain and suffering here as anything but transitory. And all of us and most of us in this room are getting old enough where the, the time just seems to be flying by. You know, it just seems like this year just started and we're already looking at the end of it. Now, I know the kids in the back don't see it that way, but you know, for those of us that are older, you know, we, we, it seems like the year just start, started and we're at the end of the year again already. You know, my, my grandson was just born a little, you know, a little over a year ago, and it seems like it hasn't been, you know, seems, seems like it's been yesterday that he was born. What is the world going to be when we look back on it from heaven's perspective and say, God, I want to just serve you. 
We as Christians need to be looking toward God, grabbing hold of him, getting into his word, being trained, surrendering to God. You know, learn to surrender. You know, I, I'm getting better at it. It's only taken 47 years to get fairly good at it. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, had, I've had my experience of fighting with God for, for years. I'm getting a lot better. It doesn't usually take me that long anymore to, to surrender. Not perfect at it. I don't surrender instantly. Sometimes, but not most of the time. And I know you're all in the same boat. Sometimes you look and say, God says surrender, and you go, yes, God. Other times you're, nope, not going to surrender there, God. My challenge for us, number one, is that we get to know God especially for those on the internet. If you don't know God, today is the day to, to accept him. Without him, you go to, you're headed to hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that's to accept his sacrifice, recognizing we're a sinner and to accept his sacrifice. But for those of us who are Christians, I want to challenge you to pray, God, help me to surrender quicker to your will. Help me. If you can make that your prayer and live it out, you're going to see God doing some mighty works in your life because he's going to say, that's my child. I want my child to surrender. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you care and you love us so much. Lord, if there's anybody who's listening to this message that doesn't know you, we ask that today they will choose you that they will confess that they're a sinner and ask you into their life and that they will share that with, with other, other Christians and get discipled. Lord, for those that know you, I'm going to challenge them, even today, to pray, Lord, help me to learn to surrender. And that you will touch hearts and we will see mighty things being done as people have surrendered to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.